welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from about 1839 and will be going up to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The opening announcements. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, or you can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com and subscribe to the substack in which I'll be giving uh, episode notes. I just recently started doing that in response to a listener finally reaching out uh, and, you know, saying they needed the episode notes. And so, you know, so you too can help shape the, you know, what this will be outside of the podcast. My imagination for, you know, interacting with a listener base is not very good. Uh, I want to make sure that I give you what can help you understand the uh, monumental changes going on in Chinese history. So uh, the, the sorts of premium features that you think would really be worth um, bringing out, please let me know. Um, I, you know. I want to make this what will be helpful to you, uh, and so let me know what you think. Uh, and how do you let me know what you think? ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. I'm not exactly flooded with suggestions, so right now is a good time to fire off an email. Let me know what you think. Um, and please rate, review, subscribe on all platforms. Okay, so here we go. Uh, today we're talking about foreigners in China, but this time focusing on the customs department that was established after the Opium War, the first Opium War. And the and it it did much more than just collect import-export taxes. It played a role of a modern bureaucracy in China to support its own mission. Like so if they were going to get the accurate you know, assessment of taxes and forward the funds on to Beijing, they needed to do that themselves. It's not like there was a modern bureaucracy uh, going in China ready to support a, you know, a customs department based on European norms. And it uh, contributed to foreign scientific and civilizational understanding of China, and we'll get into why that is in this episode. So I like to think of the think of this kind of like the geology of Niagara Falls. There's this impenetrably hard rock surface on top, with very soft shale rock under it. So in Niagara Falls. There's this river running over the top of this this is this mineral called a dolomite. It barely erodes it. This stuff is super hard. 
but the action of the falls wears away the shale rock beneath the dolomite, and the dolomite collapses as the shale underneath it wears away. Uh, and so these foreign instituted systems kind of became an example of China could reform, but the Qing aren't doing it fast enough. So the uh, acquisition of foreign-built naval ships or the training of a modern Chinese army, the building of a modern Chinese government. Well, the Qing were trying, but as the as we'll go through the Taiping Rebellion, as we'll go through some uh, wars between China and foreign powers after the Opium Wars, we'll see that what the Qing were trying to do wasn't moving fast enough. So then you cue the next revolution. Uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today I'm drawing from The Scramble for China, Foreign Devils in the Qing Empire, 1832-1914 by Robert Bickers. Uh, as we get into today's episode, remember, the Qing episode worked well enough for its own purposes. They, they, they got along. You know, so their way of doing things was good enough until military defeat tore it all up. You know, think of like a 1970s coffee maker or a Windows 95 computer that still works today. You can plug it in, you can use it, like for the computer, you can still use software from the right time period, but good luck trying to sell it. So yeah, it, it works. It works okay, but... If you really, really put it to the test of modern requirements, it's going to fail. And the Qing Empire did fail because they fell. Uh, they they couldn't keep up. You know, one place where there was a diplomatic improvement was in the simple matter, say, of where signed treaties were kept. Previously, signed treaties were kept in Canton because that's where most of the time they dealt with foreigners. You know, they, they can all go to Canton to trade, and that's it. But in a modern you know, country, that's like, let's say it's America, that's like storing treaties in San Francisco instead of Washington, D.C., yeah, San Francisco is a very important commercial city, but it isn't Washington, D.C. It isn't where all the embassies are. It isn't where all of the national decisions are made. Uh, foreign powers also insisted on direct representation in the capital, Beijing. And now that they'd won the Opium War, they could force it. You know, previously, uh, British expeditions had tried to make direct contact with the Qing government, set up an embassy in Beijing, but the Qing rejected this. Yeah, but now there are modern legation, uh, you know, diplomatic things set up in the capital. Now being the 1800s, uh, the the foreigners are going to come in 
and then in, this is for the customs department, they're going to totally rip out and replace the Chinese customs department. So they're getting rid of the Chinese system that frustrated and infuriated them, that limited them to only Canton and certain things. They're going to significantly upgrade the Chinese system to make it work along modern European lines, and it's part of this civilizing mission that a lot of the foreign powers were on. There, there is a benevolent side to it. They're not trying to just take things out of China. They're trying to develop China, trying to improve it. So I mean, that's, that's good as far as it goes. And something to keep in mind here is that as the foreign powers built up the uh, Qing Dynasty's new customs department, this was all under Qing authority. You know, like, for example, if foreign staff couldn't get along with Qing officials, they were going to be on the way out. Uh, so, you know, advancements are going to change the way the Qing define how everything works. And so in the next section, pay attention to lighthouses and borders, uh, especially around Taiwan um, wars with European powers, you know, and and with Japan, who was rising again on the European model. Um, this was peeling Chinese vassal states away from Chinese hegemony. Like in 1884 to 1885, the Sino-French War over the Vietnamese position in either French or Chinese hegemony, this was part of what was driving the Qing to define its borders more carefully. So you know, even though the customs department was staffed with foreigners, it was under Qing control. Uh, the Qing established the Zongli Yaman, kind of like the, the Foreign Affairs Department in 1861. It was a more direct equivalent to foreign ministries of European states, as opposed to like the, you know, the, the foreign tribute department that, you know, like you, you received people who were definitely representatives of foreign states, but they were bringing tribute to you know, the, you know, the great Chinese empire rather than an equal meeting, an equal making an agreement uh, the Chinese were working very hard to catch up with international law and European precedents so that every question or opportunity to clarify the, the treaties forced on China uh, worked in China's favor. You know, when we dig into the particulars of the later Taiping Rebellion and the foreign intervention, you'll see that the, the Chinese counterparts of the foreign representatives are going to be working really hard to preserve their own national dignity. So even though the foreign powers are going to make, are going to give critical aid to the Qing forces defeating the Taiping, um, they, they're really fighting to make sure that the Chinese are the ones in charge, not you know, the, the foreigners who came in and solved the problem, and therefore now they're going to be the ones to call the shots. And you know, any revolution that comes along after the Taiping Rebellion is going to be all about how to make China stronger on its own terms. 
So even though they're going to adopt a lot of foreign structures, foreign patterns, foreign methods, it's going to be with the Chinese in the driver's seat. Uh, a key figure in all this is interesting to look into is Sir Robert Hart, H-A-R-T. He lived from 1835 to 1911. He was the second Inspector General of China's Imperial Maritime Customs Service, IMCS, uh, from 1863 to 1910. He was a really even guy. He was able to figure out how to get along with a lot of people. He got along really well, especially with the Chinese, who were trying to maintain their sovereignty and national prestige. You know, but he was also full of ideas for how to modernize China's customs system. One of the you know, he was one of those pivotal men on the scene, doing more than his you know quote fair share unquote of work kinds of guys. He was really the life of the department. And some of the ideas that we'll talk about in just a moment about like customs stations being uh, places that are sending back scientific observations, lighthouses taking the weather reports, a lot of this is ideas that were his or uh, that went along with his ideas. Okay, so lighthouses. Well, uh, foreign powers invested in putting in a modern system of lighthouses to aid navigation. And I read in uh, in the Scramble for China that foreign powers were doing this in places like Turkey as well. So it's not just in China that this is happening. You know, it's partly it's the self-interest of foreign trading firms. It's you know more reliable navigation means more sure trade. Ships could. So one example of an improvement is ships could load at Hankou in central China, sail right down the Yangtze River, and put right out to sea. You know, no need to transship things in Shanghai. Um, and as lighthouses are under the under Qing authority, uh, the Qing have to more clearly define their interest in the border areas, and therefore the borders uh, that that running a lighthouse represents. Uh, the the you know Taiwan especially is an example of this. The J- the Japanese were wanting to take it from the ambiguous Qing control and put it under unambiguous Japanese control. Qing forces went in with even greater fervor to definitively pacify certain hostile Taiwanese tribes, and I believe that Taiwan was made a province partly in response to foreign powers trying to get the upper hand in what had previously just been a portion of the province, you know, in mainland China, was it Fujian? Um, Whatever is right across from Taiwan, Taiwan was just part of that province. The Qing upgraded it to a full province, partly to help uh, stake their claim to that territory when the Japanese were trying to pick it off. And along the way, uh, there was development of scientific and civilizational interest in China. 
So for example, doctors studying tropical disease, they were running experiments with theories of contagion. Like, there were so many patients that missionary doctors or humanitarian doctors would, would work with. I mean, even just doing good doctor work means like, looking at the common ailments of the people you're working with. You know, if, if they, uh, you know, have a certain kind of rash. Well, if you can find what's, you know, what's plaguing all the thousand people that you found today, that you served today, you can help a thousand people by solving that one thing. But then, you know, some some of the uh, experiments were a little more interesting. Like there was this one doctor who used his cook. You know, infected with the elephantiasis parasite, and he did an experiment to prove that the parasite causing elephantiasis passed through mosquitoes. So it was, you know, so even if you're not a world famous doctor, well, being in China offers you a lot of things to study that isn't just back at home in Europe, and so it's an opportunity for you to publish something. Lighthouse keepers were instructed to log weather, temperature, air pressure, humidity. And this added to their to the ability to track monsoons and when would be safe to set sail and when to stay in port to not get destroyed in a huge storm. Uh, so the like part of the thing with lighthouse keepers is you you had all these guys who were kind of educated. But they, they could read numbers on instruments and write that down. And so that's what they were set to do. But the thing also with lighthouses is they're in known locations. So if you keep getting weather reports from these same certain locations, then you can build up, especially when you correlate it with you know, figures coming in from other places, you can correlate weather patterns. Uh Consular officials deep in, China, in the Chinese interior had a lot of time in their hands. You know, culture shock, existential angst, other things were pushing them to take up some sort of pastime. And so you know, publishing became an opportunity to gain fame and publicity back in Europe. And writing books you know, helped exposit the Chinese interior for uh, foreign audiences missionaries would do this work as well. Like I remember when I was studying you know, ideas for how to translate the Bible into languages that have never heard it before, well, had put, uh, compiling a dictionary in the new language is an essential thing. Like if you're going somewhere where there is no dictionary, well, you need to make your own. And it's really, really hard to remember all of the vocabulary that you might possibly get. I heard something about linguists, like it's it's unfair to ask a linguist, how many languages do you speak? Because a, a linguist may have studied, you know, a hundred languages, studied the grammar, studied their type of vocabulary. Well, if you can make a dictionary, then you have it all there. You can ask, you know, your your neighbors for 10 words a day. Well, you're not going to remember all of them. Um, if you build a dictionary, this becomes scientific information about the country that you're studying. It becomes cultural, uh, you know, sociological 
uh, information that you can put in the library, but it, it's also your tool for helping you understand what you're looking at. Uh, in between all of these you know, things, you have the creation of a Chinese class of professionals who can kind of exist in the foreign world and in the Chinese world. Sometimes both foreigners and Chinese would not see them as really Chinese. But foreign firms had to rely on the people who did live in between and rely on them for doing business with Chinese suppliers. It kind of evolved to where foreign companies would do business with Chinese uh, partners in the interior because the, the the foreigners don't speak Chinese. They don't know how the Chinese economy. They just want the tea. They want the silk. They want the porcelain or or to sell whatever it is. They just want to make sure that that happens. And so the the uh, in-between Chinese who could you know speak English or other European languages, but also be Chinese, they were they were very important in helping foreign firms conduct their business. And you know, there will be people to, you know, these will be the people to help import foreign ideas and technologies for China to use as revolutionary waves topple the Qing. They're the ones who can pick up the phone and make the order. Um, Chinese companies are also cropping up to displace foreign companies. You know, so as Chinese businessmen learn foreign ways of doing business, then they can interface with the larger distributors and things like that and send you know, Chinese products around the world, but it's sold by a Chinese company in China to foreign distributors. They can use local knowledge, they can use local language, and they can displace foreigners who have to hire interpreters. It's kind of like in Moby Dick. You see that you know all the three harponeers are very well-paid non-white Americans. Uh, Tashtego was an Indian, um, so he was American, but he wasn't quite in the same like Anglo-American upper class represented in the first, second, and third mates. Well, the 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 uh, the non-Americans you know came and worked on Yankee whaling ships but the you know, the Americans who lived there forever they were going to be the captains they were going to be the ones investing in the whaling voyages they were going to be the ones who would come up through the ranks and take over whaling ship companies and so the chinese they're always there and they are going to have the long-term advantage. When I went to Shanghai for the first time, I saw these Chinese flags on the buildings on the Bund, uh, the really nice European-style built-up waterfront area in Shanghai. I don't remember if there was a holiday going on or if it was just China signaling, this is all ours now. But it was you know, after the, the creation of foreign settlements forced on China after the Opium Wars, well, it's nice to see China owning all of that again. Let's bring this back to the Taiping Rebellion. You know, foreigners are reaching deeper and deeper into Chinese territory for business, missionary, and political interests, you know, and political mostly being the concern for the stability of trade. 
you know, uh, and to make or break a Chinese revolution, the ability to get along with foreign business, you know, trade in the outside world on the outside world's terms is really critical. So, you know, like the Chinese communists will be able to go with the wind of decolonization uh, happening with Europe, Southeast Asia. Uh, wait, Europe? No, uh, the Middle East, Africa. So, so South America was already liberated. Uh, the the Chinese communists were getting were kicking all the foreigners outside out of China when you know like Britain and France were losing their uh, their national ter their national holdings in Africa. Um, the reassertion of Chinese sovereignty on Chinese terms. You know, if you ever read any accounts of the foreigners all being kicked out of China in 1949, 1950, 1951, it's quite harrowing. Uh, but you know, it, it's China in charge of China again. Um, the if you you could also compare it to the American Civil War, you know, happening at the at the same time as the end of the Taiping Rebellion, the key win for the Union in the Civil War was keeping foreign powers out of U.S. internal affairs. So the Amer so the America got to fight its own civil war on its own terms. Whereas with the Taiping Rebellion, there was a big loss for the Qing state. To they had to accept decisive help from foreign powers. They couldn't put down their own rebellion. And it's not like the foreign powers won the war alone, but you know, the, the, even the Qing generals who were in charge of you know, like attacking Nanjing, they needed supplies from foreign suppliers. Uh, so you know, like if you want a politically mature state, you need to be able to handle your own situations. And so like America was able to fight its own civil war without British or French intervention directly. The Taiping Rebellion was one conflict on the way to clarifying the problem that would be solved by the Xinhai Revolution, 1911 to 1912, that the Qing had to go that no matter how much they would self-strengthen, no matter how much they would try to reform, the Qing needed to go. Uh, China needed to be in charge of China. No more you know, foreign invaders taking on Chinese culture kind of thing. Um, so as, as you can see, the, the, uh, the, the foreign cultivation of institutions in China helped give the the Chinese who would want to reform the entire Chinese state along more modern European lines, they they had plenty of ways to see that foreigners did things differently, that maybe they worked better, and that they needed this for China. Even the revolutionaries like Sun Yat-sen and and uh, Chiang Kai-shek, they were fighting to have China be in charge of China and to kick all the foreigners out, even though they never quite did manage to do that. It wasn't until the communists took power that they were able to close up all the treaty ports, take all the land back from foreigners who had colonized the Chinese seaboard.
Well, that was our episode for today. I hope you got you got a better idea for how uh, foreign creation and cultivation of institutions for the Chinese state helped them along with you know, defining their own sovereignty on their own terms and helping you know, foreign trade interact with China so that China could sell more and that foreign companies would be able to get out of China, something that they needed and wanted in a way that they recognized. Okay, so that has been this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe on all platforms. And also you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you'd like to see the show notes, you can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com. I'm still bringing them out bit by bit. Uh, and if you become a paid supporter there, you will have access to them. And please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I have been Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you next episode.